we're going to meet two people who came to Jesus in a desperate situation. Their hope is almost gone, and they're going to be brought to a place of trust and faith by our Lord and Savior. That introduction being done, welcome back to our summer series. What we're doing is we're looking at the events of Jesus that took place in northern Israel, the Bible calls Galilee. So let's jump right into it. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, he's on the Sea of Galilee, that's a freshwater lake. He's landing in Capernaum. A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus. You can actually pronounce it Jairus or Jairus. We're going to pronounce it Jairus. Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now look what that verse says. A great crowd gathers around Jesus I'm going to guess here, because the Greek is not that precise, but I'm going to guess that it's probably in the 1,000 to 2,000 realm of people. A great crowd gathers around Jesus. He's back. He had just been across the lake. If you remember the story where he cast the legion out of that man, the demons out of that man, the demons went into a, pig, a, a herd of pigs which went down into the Sea of Galilee to drown. That had just happened. The people were frantic. They begged him to leave. He gets back in the boat with his disciples, crosses the seven to eight miles back over and maybe up a little bit to the north west part of Capernaum. That's, what, that's where he had just been. And he gets there, and one of the rulers of the synagogue meets him. The synagogue is the place there they would gather to worship if they weren't going to be going to the temple. And every synagogue, which is kind of like Jewish church, you could say it like that, had between three and seven officials. There's kind of a staff here. Three and seven officials, and they teach, they clean janitorially, they care for the scrolls, they didn't have Bibles in the pews, they had scrolls for the readers and the teachers. They administered, making sure that they got the right reader up there, the right teacher, they collected the offering, they got the offering to the benevolence so that they could give it to people who were strangers and orphans and widows and People that had a downturn in the economy, that's how they could eat. And they oversaw all that happened within the buildings, including in the synagogue was the school system for the children. And the ruler that comes to Jesus, remember his name is Jairus, he oversees the entire ministry. He's the head honcho, kind of like the chairman of the church today. And he is selected by the people. Did you know that? The people select the ruler of the synagogue. And Jairus would have been well-respected. He would have been very religious. He would have been devoted to Judaism. A very godly, pious man. In verse 22, he comes to Jesus and he fell at his feet. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's a bit of a similarity between Jewish people and American people. We just do not beg. Well, I would ask you, rhetorically, meaning that you answer this in your mind, when's the last time you pleaded 
and begged on your knees or your face before somebody. My guess is that for nearly everybody in this sanctuary, up in the balcony, you're going to answer, not ever, possibly when you were a little kid. He fell at his feet. Jewish people don't do that. They don't bow to people easily. But he's in in an extreme situation. He is desperate. Look at verse 23. My little daughter is at the point of death. Luke has this event, as does Matthew. Matthew doesn't give a whole lot of detail. Mark gives a lot of detail. Luke, characteristically, he's a doctor, comes at it with a little bit of different details. So Luke alone tells us this little girl is his only daughter. And what should have been a time of joy and future hope because we find out from Mark that she's 12 years old. That means she's marryable. I know that's really weird, right, for us today. Marrying below 18 is weird today, below 22. In fact, the norm now in this generation is trending up into the upper 20s before people get married. But she, in Jewish culture, is 12. That means she could be married. In fact, they were often married between 12 and 14 years old. And what should have been a time of joy... Thinking about your future with your husband and the children, God willing, that you're going to have, now ends or is about to end in tragedy. Mark tells us she is at the point of death. In the Greek, this is really interesting. I would write this if you're using your Bible. If you're not using your Bible and you're using a pew Bible, don't write this. But really, what the Greek language means here, she's at her last gasp. That's literally what it means. So I want you to picture a terrible thought that none of us really naturally want to picture. But you've got Jairus, whose only little daughter, you can barely see her chest rise because she's breathing almost not at all. She's as good as dead. In fact, Matthew says Jairus said she was dead. She's so close to being dead that she seemed like she was dead. And I imagine her father by her bed when he hears a commotion outside, people running to the shores of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and he learns that Jesus had returned to Capernaum, and I can picture inside of his heart a spark of hope comes in. Now let's think through this for a moment, you ready? I mean, why wouldn't that happen He had likely been in the synagogue that day when Jesus powerfully cast a demon out of a man. He saw the power and the authority of Jesus. He may have been in that house when Jesus healed the paralyzed man. You remember that guy that got lowered down through the roof that his four friends cut? That happened in Capernaum. And there were a lot of religious officials from Jerusalem. They're going to get the local officials as well. So Jairus was likely in that house watching this. He sees Jesus' power. And I can definitely tell you because the text says that all Israel heard about Jesus raising a dead boy to life in Nain. That's 25 miles away, that little village. He knows all of these things that have happened. He's heard them. Two of the three he's likely seen with his own eyes. In fact, Jesus had performed more miracles in Capernaum than anywhere on the earth. 
And now his daughter is the one in great need of a miracle. And what does he do? He leaves his daughter who is at her last gasp and runs to meet Jesus. Now parents, I want to speak to you for a moment. I have four children, if you didn't know that. Four kids. Three of them are grown. 24, 22, 21, and then our surprise child, 13-year-old Andy. So I know what it's like to have that very familiar nightmare that something happens to your child and it wakes you up and you are absolutely so praising God that it was just a dream. It's the worst nightmare of any parent that something would happen to any of our children. So I want you to really understand, parents, I want you to get inside the sandals of Jairus as he's running to Jesus. Hope is sparking in his heart. And in desperation, he says to Jesus, verse 23, Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Do we not pray like that when our children are sick? And Jesus, full of compassion, verse 24, went with him. Now, there's a tense in the Greek, just like the English language has different tenses. The Greek language does as well. And the tense here is that Jesus immediately and without delay started off towards that little girl. He didn't ponder it. He didn't have to decide. He didn't finish up what he was doing. He didn't say hello to other people. He immediately went with Jairus to his daughter. And they're on their way, and they meet the second person that's in great need in this story, the pitcher within the pitcher. And Mark tells us of the crowd again. So this is how you know there's a lot of people, because he repeats it again. When the Bible does that, that's a really good clue for us. There's a lot of people here. Verse 24, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, ladies, a woman in her regular monthly period was classified as a nida in Jewish culture. But a woman who bled beyond her normal monthly cycle was classified as what they called a zavah. You've got a nida, that's very normal, that's your period is here. But if it keeps going, now they call that woman a zavah. And it wasn't a life-threatening condition, it was a life-destroying one. Let me say that again. It's not a life-threatening condition, but it is a life-destroying one because Scripture declares her unclean. If a woman, Leviticus 15 says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, that's this woman, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. So a zavah was continually unclean. Now listen, we don't use these words. That means to us, well, you got to go take a shower. There's dirt. There's some kind of contamination physically on you. That's not what the Bible means when it calls somebody unclean. It means they're spiritually defiled. It means now that she's fairly close to the classification of a leper. She cannot have any physical contact with anybody. I mean, she literally cannot touch anybody. Or she will render them spiritually defiled. So she cannot go into the temple. 
She cannot go inside of a synagogue. She cannot even go to a busy market because she was contaminated. If she jostles and touches somebody else, they're contaminated. Meaning, if she's unmarried, she's not going to get married. And if she was married, her husband now has Jewish legal grounds to divorce her. And if she has children then she's unable to hold them or wipe their tears away. Anybody she touches, she renders them spiritually unclean, meaning they have now become out of the favor of God. This is the life-destroying condition that this woman's been in for 12 long years. And you might say to yourself, well, how cruel can God be to declare her in the Bible unclean? What does she do wrong? It doesn't seem fair. The point of the Levitical law was to convey the deadly, untreatable, serious nature of sin. Her physical uncleanness pointed to the spiritual uncleanness that sin causes. And all sin defiles, and it separates, and it ruins life, and it directs people to the grace and mercy of God. Parents, you know this. Married couples, whether you have children or not, you know this. I mean, just think back to the last time you had a fight with each other. And until you came together, and you repented, and you confessed, and you, and you forgave, then it was like two ships passing far from each other, even under the same roof. You were uncomfortable around each other. Listen, that's what sin does. It defiles. It separates. Well, it does it vertically. It separates people from God. That's what sin does. And all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, all of that blood, all of those animals that were put to death for the sins of the people, listen, all of that pointed forward. <clears throat> that there's going to come somebody who will shed his blood for them and make them clean once and for all. And that one had come. He's in the midst of this great crowd. And he's about to make this woman clean. Why? Because he is the son of God. We've got a bleeding woman. We've got a dying little girl. We've got two pictures of the teaching of the gospel. One of them, we see the defiling power of sin. The other one, the final consequences that sin produces, which is death. We're seeing the gospel unfold, and it directs the hope of all humanity straight only to Jesus. She needed a savior. The bleeding woman and the dying girl, she needed, they needed a savior. And look at verse 26. She had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, interestingly, the Jewish physicians, they had 11 treatments for this woman's condition. I'll give you three of them. There's eight more. One of them is this. Set her in a place, I'm actually quoting to you, ancient Jewish remedy for this ongoing bleeding condition. Set her in a place where two ways meet, that's an intersection, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and someone come behind and frighten her and say, arise from thy disease. That's one of the cures. And she had to go pay a doctor for this. 
Another treatment for this particular problem had her carry with her a barley corn kernel taken from the droppings of a female donkey. Believe it or not, that's one of the treatments for this condition. A third one had her carry the ashes of an ostrich ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and in a cotton bag in the winter. There's three of the 11. She went to a doctor. The Bible says she went to many physicians. They gave her probably all 11 of these and spent all that she had. She had to pay for every one of them, but she's no better. Actually, she's gotten worse. She's broke and she's broken. Now, by the way, can I ask a very personal question? And again, this one's rhetorical. I really just want you to think of this on your own, but I really, really, really want you to answer it in your own mind. And I have to answer this too. When is honestly the last time that God brought you to a place of brokenness? Well, let me define that a little bit. A place where there are no more solutions. You've tried everything. A place where everything you've tried has not worked. And you're absolutely out of ideas and options. And there's no help coming on the horizon. And you fall before the Lord in abject poverty of your soul. Broken. In absolute entire need for him. When's the last time God has brought you to that place? Now, some of you who are young haven't arrived there yet. That's okay. I didn't either at your age. You will get there because God will bring you there because it's only there that we truly, truly witness his power and his mercy. She is broke and broken. And like Jairus, hope flares into her heart when Jesus comes back to Capernaum and it propels her to an incredibly bold and audacious action. Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now look at that phrase, for she said. That's a way in the Greek of saying she's talking herself into doing this. Because what she's doing is absolutely illegal. Jesus passes by. She enters from behind him. She worms through the crowd, moving people out of her way. She bends down to the very bottom of his garments, where at the four corners are tassels. That's what Jewish men wore. And she grabs one of the fringes, one of the tassels of his garment, according to Luke 8, verse 44. See, Jewish men wore these robes. They resembled a shawl that had four corners, kind of like a rectangular piece of cloth, and attached to each corner, these tassels. You know why they sewed them in there was to remind them to obey God, to resist sin. So she bends down. She's hidden in the crowd. She touches one of the tassels. And amazingly, look at verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dries up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. In that very moment, she felt, she knew she had been healed. And immediately Jesus stops 
verse 30, because he perceived in himself the power had gone out from him and immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, you got to know something about Jesus. He doesn't lack knowledge unless his father doesn't give it to him. Now, I really believe in Philippians 2, what that means is that he emptied himself. I believe what that means is that he didn't become anything less than fully God and fully human, God in flesh. What he did was he gave up the divine prerogative to exercise his divinity. Now, he came to do everything at the will of his Father, which is what we need to learn to do. He walked the road for us. So when the Father told him on the mountain, here's your 12 disciples, he went down and selected the 12 disciples. That's why he prayed on the mountain. God, Father, who do you want me to bring into my disciple group? So does Jesus know who touched his garments? Is this just dramatic hyperbole? I think when the father tells him who touched the garment, he's going to know. But I think there's a reason he's asking this question. She's got to come forward. Because if we thought, by the way, that God exercises his power in some numb, dispassionate way, we really don't understand God. It's very personal to God when he moves. Pain and suffering impacts our God. He feels it very deep within him like a kick in the gut. His love, his mercy, they are ever ready to spring forth in power. And when his power went out to that woman, he feels it. Because saving people is personal to Jesus. I hope you know that about your God. He stops to identify the person who he healed. And why does he do that? Well, I think at least two reasons. First... She's got to testify and witness what God has done for her and not conceal it from other people. And it's the same for us, Christian. We who have been saved by Jesus, we all carry the responsibility to testify of his mercy. So Jesus keeps looking around. His, his disciples are, are saying, Jesus, don't you see all the people pressing in around you? Why are you stopping? There's a girl dying. Can you imagine what's going on in Jairus? But he keeps asking. Luke says, everybody's denying it. All means all. That's all that all means to the Greek. That means this woman's denying it too. So finally, his eyes fall on her and his penetrating gaze grips her. And Luke tells us in his gospel, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And Mark tells us in verse 33, she told him the whole truth. She's terrified. She just defiled everybody that she touched. That's a very serious thing to the Jewish people. She could be fined. She could be in prison. Listen, if they discover that she did it deliberately, she could be taken out and stoned to death. She tells him the whole truth. But I think there's another reason that Jesus, in addition, stops and stops makes her come forward. And I think that second reason is this. She needs to know the full extent of her healing. 
Now, I'm going to take you deep into the language. You ready? You've, you've have to hold, you have to hold with me on this, or you won't get the beauty of this passage. He says to her, verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is the only time in the Gospels that he ever called the woman daughter. Very, very intimate. How ironic that Jairus' little daughter was dying. He calls this woman daughter. And he mentions her faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Even though it's weak, even though it's secretive, she snuck through the crowd. It was faith nonetheless. And Jesus knows faith when he he sees it. There's times when Jesus heals somebody because of a, of a person's faith, and then there's other times that there's no faith present. This woman's faith moved Jesus to make her well. Now, here's a word that almost always in the New Testament means salvation. It's the Greek word sozo. He declared that she was saved physically, but also spiritually, reinforced by what he says next. He blesses her in a Jewish blessing. Go in peace. That's shalom. That means you are in a state of well-being and happiness because you're now joined with God. That's what peace means in Christian. You alone can have that kind of peace. It only comes when you have a relationship with God. It's a state of well-being and happiness because you know God is your heavenly father and you are his son or, your, or his daughter. Jesus declared this woman to now be in a right standing with God. But then he says something that is absolutely puzzling. Have you ever raised your eyebrows at this? Verse 34. Seems unnecessary, doesn't it? Be healed of your disease, he says to her. Or if you've got the NIV, be freed from your suffering. Why does he need to say this since verse 29 tells us that she's already healed from her disease? Well, it kind of helps you to know that the word healed in verse 29 is not the same word healed in verse 34. In verse 29, the word healed means to be restored to physical health. That's awesome. She's not bleeding anymore. She's not unclean anymore. But verse 34, the word healed means wholeness. It means that all of her is freed from suffering, her mind, her body, her spirit. There's something very interesting in that word disease because it was the same word used for the whip that they used on the back of Jesus. It's an implement for punishment. Be healed of your whip, of your disease, of your scourge. You see, the Jewish woman had been well taught that her disease was a scourge from God for sin. That's not true, by the way, but that's what she's been taught. And for 12 years, she believed herself to be perpetually unclean, that God was mad at her, that she was out of his favor. She was under his judgment. And just your bleeding stopped, your body healed, is not necessarily going to heal her mind. It's not going to restore her spirit. So Jesus powerfully commands her, daughter, be whole. Your body, your mind, your spirit, don't ever again consider that you're unclean before God because you are at peace with him. That's the point of her having to come forward. Now, you remember, there's another picture going on here. 
What do you think Jairus is feeling this whole time? His daughter's at her last gasp. He's trying to get her there. Jesus started out in a hurry. Started out immediately. But then he stops to deal with his woman. He's looking around trying to find out who touched him. What does he care? What does Jairus care about who touches Jesus? And even worse, his worst fear happens, verse 35. While he is still speaking, Jesus is still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Now what would you be thinking? Would you be blaming God if only you had hurried? Would you be angry at that woman who caused the delay? But Jesus knows exactly what to do for his people. He strengthens his faith, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Literally, stop fearing, keep on believing. That's the Greek. Stop fearing, keep on believing. So, verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. This is Jewish mourning. That's what they do. It's very vivid, very uh, emotional very detailed, it's purposely intended to stress the desolation and the finality of death because death is always viewed by the Jewish mind as the worst final enemy. And there are people wailing and mourning outside and there's people apparently inside the house. And when Jesus enters into the house, he says to them, why are you making a commotion of weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Note their response. And I want you to note something about Jesus. He has absolute mastery over our enemy called death. And he says, she is but sleeping to give the understanding that her death is only temporary. And he takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of his disciples, and her parents into her bedroom. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she did rise, and she did live, and Jairus did hold his little girl again. I mean, that's powerful. But what does that have to do with us today? And I'm going to give you actually three observations from this that Chuck Swindoll taught me. I'm going to just give you what Chuck Swindoll says, and I'm going to add a little bit to it, but I think he's very insightful on this. Number one, and I hope you remember these, I hope you write them down in your notes, for humility to displace skepticism, which is doubt, we often must reach the point of desperation. For humility to displace doubt, we often must reach the point of desperation. Sometimes we're going to find ourselves in desperate times. Well, you know what? I'm going to strengthen that. And I'm going to tell you something a little bit more robust. You live long enough, you're going to definitely find yourself in a desperate time. And when you do... I hope these words and I hope this story from the gospel and many other of them from the scriptures remains in your mind. It comes to the surface when you need them because you need to understand that those times are designed by God, meaning he either allows them or he brings them 
but they're designed by God to reveal your powerlessness and his great strength. Now, did you hear that? Because this is utterly the depth of this message. When those times your marriage is falling apart, your child is sick, you lost your job, you can't seem to find one, your house burned down, whatever it might be, when you are desperate, you're going to find out at that time that God is going to show you just how how powerless you are and how powerful he is. That's the design of the trial. And they are instrumental, these desperate times, in helping your humility come easily. I've seen distrusting, private, angry people encounter desperate times, and finally, suddenly, they open up, they gently ask for help. All of a sudden, they're shapeable again. I cannot imagine that Jairus, the synagogue ruler, would ever ordinarily have reached out to Jesus personally, and I'm going to guarantee you, he certainly absolutely never would have fallen at his feet in worship and pleading. It never would have happened if it wasn't for the desperate time he found himself in. Yet desperation can move the most hardened, arrogant sinner to plead to God for mercy and help. C.S. Lewis said it really well once in the Problem of Pain book. He said, pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. Did you? That, that is really, really well said. Pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. But there's a second takeaway that Swindoll gives, and I want to give it to you. For trust to eclipse our panic... For trust to eclipse or be greater than our panic and take the place of our panic, learn the value of delay. And American people do not like that. And I'm going to give that much more widespread. Human beings don't like delay. Tim Keller said, God's grace rarely operates according to our schedule. Can I encourage you to write that down? Memorize it. It's only a few words. God's grace rarely operates according to our schedule. Delay has eroded many a person's faith, yet it affords us the opportunity to hand that circumstance over to God. Think of the times, friends, in your lives when there have been delays and you struggled with anxiety and you struggled with panic and you had that fog of uncertainty, you didn't know what to do, yet when God moved and he blew away that fog, the outcome in the picture exceeded your hopes. That's the way it works with God. And bit by bit, year by year, you will grow in your confidence that God truly is in charge. The Bible calls it sovereignty. He sits on a throne and he conforms all things according to the purposes of his will. And all of his will is perfectly good. He cannot not be good to his children Everything that comes to you will pass through the hands of God. And even though it may sting in the moment, it will be your ultimate good. That is faith. And bit by bit, year by year, that can grow. When you learn that God's grace rarely operates according to your schedule. There's a third and a final one. And here it is. For faith to replace our fears... 
steer clear of the naysayers. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So I'm going to ask you a question, and young people, middle-aged people, and old people, I want you to answer it as honestly as you can. I'm not going to ask you to do anything about it. Let the Lord do that. So I'm just asking you to be honest. Are the closest friends in your life godly people? If they're not, they're going to ruin your faith. Are the closest friends in your lives godly people? If they're not, they will ruin your faith. If your faith is weak, one of the very first things I tell people all the time, look at your friends and the counsel that they're giving you. And if your close friends have an unhealthy or a non-existent relationship with God, you're never going to grow strong in your faith, except now flip it the other way. When you surround yourself with strong spiritual people, your faith will grow day by day. Jesus sends out of the house of Jairus those who had no faith, those who laughed at what he said about this little girl. You've got to send out of the house of your life the same type of people. You don't let them in. Not every sick and suffering saint is going to be healed in this life. Not every little girl of Jairus is going to come back to life. Not every bleeding woman will have her body restored. Not always in this life, but eventually every Christian will cease from suffering. And God will give in this life the faithful Christian enough grace to weather any storm that he allows into your life. So how do you do it? Here's my closing statement. See your desperate times as divine opportunities to grow. Secondly, value even your delays as moments to trust. And third, surround yourself with friends of faith. Amen? Let's pray.